A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. For so many people now, it's not a theoretical thing. It's here, this new virus, and they're having to deal with that fact. And lots of people are trying to do the right thing when it's not so clear what the right thing is. Like Luis, who works in construction in Long Island. When he got tested and learned he had coronavirus, he went back to where he was living. He shared a house with several other migrants. He's an asylum seeker here from Central America. And he immediately told his landlady, because she's pregnant. He didn't want to put her or anybody at risk. She said he had to leave. So he decided to isolate in the only place he had, his car. He parked outside of a 7-Eleven. He didn't even want to go inside to get water because he didn't want to infect anybody. This um, is a voicemail message he left for the woman handling his immigration case. At this moment, I feel like I don't know what to do. I've isolated in my car because I don't want to contaminate more people. I don't want people to go through what I'm going through. It hurts to tell the truth. It hurts. You have no idea how much. He says, I haven't left my car. I've been cooped up here. If I didn't have a conscience, I'd be out there. But no. I don't have that kind of heart. His lawyer heard this message. And she also tried to do the right thing. She found him housing to ride out the illness. Among other things, an epidemic, a plague, a contagion, is a time that we're tested. And we rise to the occasion or we don't. Or we can't. Anthony Almagera very much wants his team to rise to the occasion. He's the vice president of Local 3621 of the EMS Officers Union in New York City. EMS, Emergency Medical Services. It's part of the fire department. His job title is Lieutenant Paramedic. And besides the stuff he does for the union, he manages a crew of 50 EMS workers. Even before the coronavirus outbreak, they were short hundreds of EMS workers in the city. So they were overworked before, and it's even more so now. Like, this past Tuesday, Anthony worked a 16-hour shift at a station in Brooklyn, watching 911 calls come in. He talked to my coworker, Miki Meek. A typical day before the coronavirus outbreak was around 4,000 calls. This past week saw the first big spike. I worked last night at 1 in the morning after we had just clocked in 6,500 plus calls at midnight. At 1 in the morning, there were still 274 jobs holding. That's 274 jobs in the system that at the moment don't have an ambulance to get to them. So these are people who have called 911 but right. no one's been able to be dispatched. Right. And how does that make you feel when you see that you have that many calls still in the queue? It's a little frightening because, the, you know, they have that many calls holding. Just to give you some perspective, yesterday it was 6,500 calls was the most we've ever done. Ever? Ever, yeah, even including 9-11. Later that morning, he was in an ambulance and went on a call near Coney Island. A man had phoned in about his wife. He came home and found her on the floor. Call type said, fever. Cardiac arrest, COVID case. And the husband is outside. And they're both healthcare workers. The patient was somebody who worked in a nursing home, and the husband works in the hospital. And she was sent home Friday with fever and remained feverish throughout. So I'm sitting there talking to the husband, and he stated to me, 
uh, yesterday, he called where he works to say he wanted to stay home and take care of his wife. And they told him he couldn't because he's an essential employee, that the hospital was short-staffed and he needed to come in. And at the moment, he judged that his wife wasn't critical. You know, she was feverish and stuff, but okay, she'll make it through the night. And he came home and found her dead. Found her dead, he's saying. <sighs> For 17 years, I've been going on these calls of cardiac arrest or, or other traumatic things. And it's never been an issue for me to go up to the family member when we can't do anymore and say, I'm sorry. And then I put my arm around the patient's family member. You know, I, I let them cry into my shoulder or, uh, and I've hugged them or anything along those lines to provide a moment of empathy and, and sympathy. Mm-hmm. Yesterday when I went outside, because he happened to be outside, and I saw this man's grief in his face. And I saw him just break down and how he felt guilty about not being there. And I had to stay six feet away. Hmm. I couldn't kneel next to him like I have with other patients in the past. I couldn't put my arm around him because I'm concerned about my health. Um, because there's a high potentiality that he has it as well. And I just watched him, and it's the first time in 17 years that I actually got back in the truck and I cried. I'm sorry, Anthony. No, thank you. It's, um, I'm sorry again. Um, no, what's, what's... That was a crew member's. Yeah, I have about uh, 60 messages that are unopened at the moment. Um, Anthony, I tested positive. What do I do? Uh, Anthony, uh, my wife tested positive. What do I do? They're all in that general nature. He's worried. How many of his crew won't be available soon? Going by numbers he's seen in other places, he figures half of them will end up quarantined. Right now in Anthony's crew of 50, six people are already out. The entire crew, all 50 of them, have been exposed to somebody with COVID-19 at this point. In the past, the policy for New York Fire Department EMS workers was, when you're exposed to a contagious virus like that, you weren't supposed to come to work. But that policy changed about a week and a half ago. Now you stay home only if you're actually showing symptoms. Anthony thinks it's because the city is so desperate for EMS workers right now. So if they can squeeze another five or six days out of you before you become symptomatic, so I think that's what their motivation is. So it's not said explicitly, but the crews are short. They need workers. You guys are essential. It feels we're expendable. Now, listen, uh, I don't believe that the chief of EMS feels we're expendable. I don't want to put that on her. Mm-hmm. But it feels overall by the department and the city that we're just going to keep putting you out there because we don't have any other options because we didn't properly prepare for this. Spokesperson for the fire department told us that EMS workers are expected to show up if they've been exposed to the virus because at this point in New York, all EMS personnel have likely been exposed to the virus. Right now, EMS workers don't even have a way to get tested to see if they have the virus just like the rest of us. And Anthony estimates they're going to run out of N95 masks in less than a week, this coming Friday, April 3rd. What are you telling your workers right now? Well, the tough thing about this is we all signed up for this. You know, in a, in a pandemic, that is EMS's time to shine, right? Treating viruses is what we do all day long. You name it. You know, HIV, hepatitis, 
meningitis, you, this is what we do. But in order to do it effectively, we have to believe that when we're out there with the potential of dying, getting hurt or seriously ill, that if something happens to us, we're going to be taken care of. And the consensus among the membership is that's not going to happen. The feeling is we're not going to be taken care of. Yes. What do you think the next couple of weeks are going to be like? Oh, we're not even to the halfway point here. You know, they keep talking about flattening the curve. Mm -hmm. We're on the upward tick of that curve still. Do you have any workers who are wanting to quit? No, I haven't had any workers that wanted to quit. I have not heard that. It's like the virus is here now. It's testing us, all of us. EMS workers and doctors and nurses who are now risking their lives. But also delivery people, postal workers, politicians, those of us who are suddenly out of work, parents who have no talent for homeschooling at all, even those of us who are just on lockdown, worried for older relatives. We're all being tested. So today on our program, we're going to hear from people who are right in the middle of it now, being tested in pretty extreme ways. Plus, before the hour's out, a call from the future from somebody in China who's kind of on the other side of this thing. WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Yeah, you should stay your ass indoors. Yeah, you should stay your ass indoors. And even though you're getting bored, you can leave your house no more. Throughout this episode, we're featuring original songs that we heard on Instagram, created by the British musician and producer Emanike, Wise Been Home Alone Social Distancing. He's jokingly calling these songs his Corona EP, and they are all him, no backing band, looping his own voice. The songs are part PSA, part pure pop, just a man bringing some light in a dark moment. And now we turn to Act One. Act One, the inside game. Okay, so this virus is out there, and so many of us are scared to get it and wonder what would happen if we did get it. And honestly, for all the coverage of the illness, we have not heard the people that it's happened to talk at length about that experience very much. One thing that came up here as we've all talked about this is what is going on in the homes where both parents get the virus? Like, how do they manage? And just coincidentally, one of our co-workers, Ben Calhoun, has been worried about his brother-in-law, Elia Einhorn, and Elia's wife, Amy, who are in that exact situation. They were among the first wave of COVID-19 patients in New York City. Their daughter, whose name is Conway, is just a toddler, so she is in that period of parenting when a kid needs constant vigilance. Ben uh, recorded a call with them. Amy, who got sick first, was too sick to actually get out of bed. Elia could drag himself around, but it was pretty rough going. He was sicker than he had ever been in his life, he said. One other detail, Elia has a history of asthma, so he's at elevated risk. he had also developed GI symptoms, throwing up, a possible warning sign that a COVID patient is in more danger. All this was playing out in a 500-square-foot New York City apartment, so picture, like, three rooms and a bathroom. Ben called them in the afternoon. Elliot had just gotten Conway to nap, so you'll hear Elliot trying to keep his voice down, trying not to wake her. What is just, like, the logistics of your situation in the apartment right now? 
like where are you and where is Amy and how like how much are you able to either be around each other or not be around each other or I I haven't seen Amy in like a week like Amy's just been in our room the whole time so since there's one bathroom she comes out to use the bathroom and um otherwise like I just don't see her and we usually talk for like one or two minutes but yeah Amy's just in our room like and she's really really sick like her fever goes up and down and up and down and just when we think it's gone it comes back at worse and it's uh but she's just really like 100 percent like locked in the room yeah locked in the room like literally I, ha- I i told her like lock the door so conway can't come in but you got so you got you got conway down though she's asleep she's asleep i am gonna i just saw amy i get to see her like three times a day for two minutes. And I said to her, we are going to have to do such a strict regimen to get this kid back to normal life after this, because I am like, you know, I'm trying to keep her life as normal as possible. Uh So because she already can't see Amy, she can't go outside, you know? So I'm just like, I've become like the biggest fucking pushover. Like I, I said to Amy, she had like a tasting menu before bed. Like we usually let her have a little snack if she wants it. Uh-huh. She's like adding things, having me get up and go to the kitchen and get more stuff. And I like, no. I like can hard getting up to go get her something. It's just like, Oh dude. So she must've had like bites of like seven snacks and like, it's ridiculous. But well, I just and I can imagine that. that as a parent, you're just like, you're having all these needs that are unmet right now. And right now you're having a need that I can meet. So let me just like throw whatever I can in there. Exactly. Exactly. I looked, I looked at us, we were reading one of those Mo Willems books, you know, that like, um, yeah, like piggy and elephant. Yeah. We were reading, I don't know why, but she wanted to read the baby one and there's two pages that are mirrors. And I looked at us and I was like, we look so glazed. We look like, college freshman who just discovered weed and smoked half an ounce you know <laughs> me and this two and a half year old look terrible <laughs> uh, and i'm wearing my mask you know because there's this theory about the viral load getting bigger you know what i mean with more exposure so like just to give you sort of a scene report here it looks like think about a normal Brooklyn sized apartment. It looks like there was 50 toddlers who had an unsupervised birthday party here. So like from my vantage point on the couch, I'm looking out the first layer is like a pegs game where you like push buttons into colors. The second layer is all these three by two foot, huge Paw Patrol pages to color. The next level is a farm that seems to explode. have exploded the next level are all the Play-Dohs strewn around the ground. Cause I just like, can't pick it up. Do you have all your logistics covered? Like groceries? Like how are you doing groceries? How are you like, I don't know, like laundry, like. Laundry has been a problem. I'm, I'm waiting for Amy to get better because we have to wash it in the bathtub and I just can't physically do it right now. Like I can't stress to you how tired I am. Like you're just too tired. I'm just too tired, man. I like can't sit up that long. And so I'm waiting for Amy to either get better um, so that she can watch Conway and I can take longer and do it slowly. 
or um because by the end of the day when Tommy goes to sleep i'm i'm like fried totally fried like i can't even stand up because you're the only person doing conway right like you're like oh yeah a hundred percent yeah amy hasn't seen her in a week it's like i'm just with her like yeah now 24 7 um do you feel like you've 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 like i feel like if i were you i would keep like waiting to feel like like, <laughs> like bottomed out like like be like is this like is this the bottom is this the bottom like am i like yeah, just like waiting for that upswing you know i keep waiting for it and i think it comes i thought it came like four times and then like today i'm the most tired i've been the whole time so oh. i just don't know and it's like on the one hand i mean we have like we have food we have water we have electricity i mean we have everything we need if if this is all that ever happens, it'll be a triumph, you know? It seriously will, if this is all that happens. But it's just the scariest part is, is it going to go into our lungs, you know? Like, yeah. right when I start to feel better, I think, like, you know, they there's these, it sort of shows it's these, like, ground glass sort of deposits in people's lungs. And I've started thinking of it as, like, your lungs turning to glass. And I keep reading these stories out of Wuhan, about these young physicians that are like my age, I mean, relatively young physicians that are dying from this. And I had to stop reading them because it's like, I just can't keep reading about people's lungs metaphorically turning to glass. And it's just making me worry too much that it's going to happen to our family. Yeah. It's so scary to not be able to protect your family against this like insidious element of it. And that's why like, like that's why I emailed you guys that stuff. Like, I don't know if anything's going to happen. And if it does happen, it's going to happen so quick. I don't have time to deal with anything. I don't have time to deal with getting my affairs in order, you know? So I emailed you and Katrin, like very perfunctory, like here's, here's how to, you know, like what me and Amy want. Here's our financial stuff. Here's like, you know, here, because I just have no fucking clue. And that's the worst part. If we could be guaranteed that that wasn't going to happen, this would just be, uncomfortable and fine you know we could laugh yeah. about it in a different way but it's the fear yeah. that any second one of us could just take really ill and maybe worse we're so worried about you <sighs> yeah um, how do you think that Conway's doing she's physically she's doing fine but she's showing all these behaviors about being upset and, and she's actively talking about it now, like every bedtime, she wants me to tell her stories about everybody getting sick, me getting sick, her getting sick, Amy getting sick, you getting sick, and Katrin and your kids, you know, like everyone in our family getting sick is like now part of our story. And yeah, she's just like trying to process it. what we're playing. Yeah, exactly. We tell her it's the inside game. Everybody's playing the inside game right now, and soon it's going to end. But for now, this is what's happening, and these are the rules of the inside game. But she keeps saying, like, Daddy, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Um, and we're snuggling a lot. Like, you know, and the pediatrician even said, look, if you both get tested positive, you can both just come out and you can just take off your masks and be around Conway. But with all this research about the viral load buildup, we've had an infectious disease doctor that we've been talking to that said, you know, don't do that. You know, you can snuggle her if you need to because she's a toddler. You can't control that. But, like, as little as possible. So I try to, like, 
put her between my legs or like have my foot on her just to like touch her a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. but it's been sad, man. I mean, she like, she said to me, like, I, I, I so sad. I so sad. None of my friends want to come to my house. Oh, <laughs> oh man. That's hard. <sighs> Like everything that she draws, she's like, this is for my friends, or I made this for my mommy, this is for mommy. So, I mean, you know, on the one end, she's doing fine. And then on the other end, she's really feeling, you know, like her age equivalent of like really lonely and cut off. And mm-hmm. She keeps talking to me about how sick Amy is. And I tell her like, you know, mama's sick, but mom's getting better. And, you know, and like, I didn't even tell her I was sick, but she somehow figured it out. I don't know if it's the mask or what. So she says, daddy's sick. And I said, yeah, daddy's a little bit sick, but he's okay. I mean, I feel dramatic feeling so upset about it, but again, it's like, uh, you know, like, uh, like, are these the last conversations <laughs> that I'm ever going to have with her? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, oh man. You're getting the ugly cry. <laughs> Dude. You're getting the ugly cry. I, I, I've only let myself cry about it a little bit. <sighs> I wish I could do something for you yep. guys. Ah. <sighs> You're a regular Barbara Walters, Ben. You're getting it out of me. (laughs) (laughs) Should we have the kids FaceTime tonight? Would that would that be helpful? Yeah, that would be just for her and for me to just sit down for a minute, honestly. It's like one of the only times I can rest when she's awake. We can do more of that too. Like if 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 the kids can keep her occupied, like on FaceTime. Um. Oh man! Honestly, you guys are great. Oh, now she's waking up. This is the peril of making any noise in this environment. But hopefully, she'll go back to sleep. You guys have been amazing. Just FaceTiming with your kids has been amazing. Yeah, we're just gonna have to ride it the fuck out. Einhorn with Ben Calhoun, who's a producer on our show. That was recorded a little over a week ago. Uh, at this point today, Amy is much better. She's actually up and around. Elia got a lot worse after that call, but now he's also feeling better. Conway is presumed to have had a mild case of the virus. She's doing fine. I'm talking about a quarantine. Some of you don't know what that means. Right now there's one too many people on the streets And on the ground like, what's that gotta do with me? It's like what do we say? Don't show up, don't come out Don't know what you're doing out of your house Why isn't there a mask covering your mouth? As if there ain't a virus spreading round and round I'm talking about a quarantine some of you don't know what that means 
no, no. You don't understand. You don't realize. You need to wash your hands. You need to sanitize and stay inside. Deck two, the view from the park. So one of the producers here at our show, Emmanuel Berry, got to know reporter Jiayong Fan. Back when we were doing our Hong Kong show this past fall, Jiayong's a staff writer at The New Yorker. Emmanuel and she have stayed in touch since then. Emmanuel was the editor for a story that Jiayong did here a few weeks ago. Jiayong has a mom who lives in a medical facility in New York City. Jiayong tweets about her all the time. And right now, Jiayong's in the situation that a lot of us are in, worried for her parents. But a much more extreme version of that than most of us are dealing with. Like, already so much has happened with her mom. Emmanuel checked in with her. How are you? I am trying to hang in there, I guess, is the most optimistic way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I follow you on Twitter. Um, I I see that you tweet a lot about your mom, but I don't actually exactly know what... um, What's your mother's ailment is? I just know she's she's hospitalized. Can you what what what's going on there? My mother doesn't have control of any part of her body at this point except for her eyeballs, the movement of her eyeballs. So she is completely cognitively intact and as sharp as she ever has been, but she's imprisoned in a body that refuses to cooperate in any way. She hasn't left her bed, her hospital bed, except to go to the ICU for the last six years. The only time she's ever seen any sliver of the sky is in those few minutes when paramedics push her from the hospital entrance into an ambulance. So... When I visit her, I feel like I'm bringing the world to her. Her mother, Yao Li, has ALS. She's lived in a facility for the past six years. She always has an aide by her side. Zhang's apartment is just a three-minute walk away. She visits every day, sometimes twice a day, unless she's traveling for work. When Zhang visits, they talk. Well, mostly Zhang talks. Yali spells things out using her eyes in an alphabet chart. It's slow, but that doesn't stop Yali from expressing herself. Sometimes she tries to tell me body jokes over um, the alphabet chart that she spells with her eyes, and it'll mm-hmm. take me an hour, and I'll think that she's requesting <laughs> a medication or that some part of her, like, she'll mention butt, and I'll be like, oh, is her butt hurting? Like, is it, you know, like, do you have an infection? And if she's trying to tell me a butt yeah. joke. So that's, uh, <laughs> so, so that gives you a little bit of a sense of my mom. She mm-hmm. is someone who is, <laughs> who is relentlessly truthful. Uh, whenever a piece comes out of mine, her first question is, read me all the negative tweets about it. What is the criticism like? What are your, what are your trolls saying? And I know that sounds absurd and funny, but I think that comes from an immigrant's survival mentality. She wants to know what I need to prepare myself for in order Mm -hmm. to survive. So what, what happened last week? Take me through what happened last week. 
remember, my mother is always mm-hmm. in the best of times. My mother is a mild infection away from death in the best of times. Mm-hmm. The doctors have told me, and again and again, she will die of pneumonia. It's just a matter of time. She's already on a respirator, a machine that breathes for her. There's not that much that can be done. So when I hear news about viruses entering nursing homes, every nerve in my body is on full alarm. Jiayoung once told me that her mother lives for her. But the reverse is also true. Jiayoung lives for her mom. They're each other's only family. Which means Jiayoung is a very active family member at her mom's facility. The staff knows her. They know how protective she is. So in early March, when she heard about the virus spreading in nursing homes, she called, said, hey, I know it's a stressful time, but could you ask doctors and nurses to wear gloves and masks before getting too close to my mom? She says she could hear the tone in her own voice, anxious and demanding. This is not a tone mm-hmm. I've ever taken with um, any member of my mom's facility for as long as she's been there. But I was... I was unnerved enough. You freaked out. Yeah, I yeah. was unnerved enough by what I was reading that I called first thing in the morning to say that. And um, but I think the staff member who picked up was very annoyed with me and just said and basically said, I, I, I can't do that. Like, I can't, I don't, I, I can't tell other people here what to do. Um, and then I think she thought she hung up. She didn't actually hang up. And she said, Yali's daughter just called and she thinks that like we have to wear gloves and, you know, masks like around every patient in the hospital. And there was, I heard laughter all around. And then really, unfortunately, I heard her say, I I still to this day do not know who that staff member was, but she said, you know, and they're the ones who are Chinese. To be frank, I wasn't offended. I wasn't like, oh my God, this is so racist. I was just worried. I was worried about having offended her. I was worried about offending people who are the first line of defense. So she put her coat on over her pajamas and ran over to the facility. But when she got there, there were security guards out front and big signs. Jiayoung was so flustered, she doesn't actually remember exactly what the signs said. But the message was clear. She wasn't getting in to see her mom. How could she be sure her mom was okay if she couldn't see her? I became crazed. I was calling my best friends who were telling me that I wasn't being a rational, functional person. I I had a dream about moving my mother to a different planet. I know that sounds absurd, and it's my subconscious, I mean, it's my unconscious, so I'm yeah. not totally responsible for it, but I think some part of me knew that there was no corner on Earth that was safe. How would that even, how would that even work with a move? She is on a feeding tube. She's on a ventilator. She's hooked up on so many different whirling whirling machines. In the best of times, a move would be, would require six people, um, not including the transport. Talking to Jiayoung, I noticed she couldn't help herself going down these thought spirals far-fetched ways to save her mom, all the things that could go wrong. And I think that's because she can't do anything. And she wants to. Badly. But there isn't a way out. Where could she possibly go? Not in my apartment. My my tiny, almost studio-sized apartment would not be able to fit all the equipment that she needs. And I wouldn't be, I would not be fit 
to care for her by myself. Um, mm-hmm. Then what other facility is safe? Like what other facility in New York City is safe? What other facility in America is safe? And so you're basically at a point where you're like, there, I can't, there's nothing I can, there's nothing I can do. I'm basically at the point where my unconscious is dreaming up plans to take my mother to Mars. My mind goes to very strange places where I think about being told that my mother's ventilator has to be you, that my mother's ventilator is better. I'm sorry. It's hard for me to even come up with the grammar for this because it's so hard that my mother's ventilator could better serve someone who's younger and healthier. This hasn't happened. Nobody suggested her mom give up her ventilator, but she can't stop thinking of the possibility of it. And then my mind goes down a rabbit hole. I start looking up surgeries where I could give up half my lung, maybe so that this healthy person can still be saved because I, because it's, it's about, it's about lungs filling with fluids. Right. right? And I think, well, if I can save that other person, then my mother gets to keep her ventilator. Um, and your mind just spends hours in those rabbit holes, which are it's completely useless, right? Because it's not, I mean, this, these are not my decisions. What I'm suggesting is probably totally insane and scientifically, medically impractical. Zayang did get a small bit of relief. She managed to get in for one last visit. That was two weeks ago. What did you guys say to each other? Um... Because I am her daughter, I'm her caregiver, I am her conduit to the world, I have a responsibility to soothe her panic, not to Mm -hmm. stoke it. I said things to her that I think I would have wanted someone else to say to me, which is, this is going to be okay. We will get through this. I will see you again very soon. I don't know when, but it's going to be very soon. And um, and we will get through this together. But they weren't words I necessarily believed, if I were yeah. to be totally honest. She talked with senior hospital staff, and they told her there's a significant chance that coronavirus will enter the facility that she should be mentally prepared for what that means. Jiang thought about staying with her mom, just never leaving that visit, becoming her mom's caretaker. But her mother's longtime aide convinced Jiang she'd be more help to her mom outside and promised that she would stay with Yao Li as long as she could manage. At the time, they were hopeful it would only be a few weeks. I mean, I, I doubt myself. I don't know if I've made the right decision. I, I think that if my mom is going to if she's not going to survive the illness, then I should be the one in there. And then, I mean, and then I, my mind goes to dark places. I think, well, who cares if I don't pay the rent? Who cares if just everything else goes into absolute madness? All I want to be is with my mom. Yeah. I mean, what do you think your mom would want you to do in this situation? Um, it was, it was, it was really hard to leave her. She began crying. 
just hysterically crying because I think she knew that despite my assurances that it would be a long time before I saw her again. And and I think I think she would I think she would want me to stay safe. I think she would want me to find a way of coping through this crisis without succumbing to it, without being crushed by it. At the end of February, Zhang did a story for this show about a Chinese man reporting on the virus in Wuhan. In one of the videos this journalist makes, he introduces us to this guy he calls Ah Ming, whose father recently died because of coronavirus. Ah Ming talks about being with his father in the last hours of his life, about holding his hand as his heartbeat drops to zero. For Jia Young, it was one of the most emotional moments in the story, for obvious reasons. His story was one that I thought just contained such pain and terror that was unimaginable to me at the time. And now I realize that last Tuesday might be the last time I, I, last Tuesday might be the last time I will ever I mean, that, that might, might have been the last time I saw my mother. I can't even get the tenses straight. The grammar doesn't compute in my mind. And I thought that Amin's experience was absolutely the most devastating. And then I think about how, how lucky Amin was. I know that if my mother contracts COVID-19, she will almost certainly die. And I and I also know that I also know that when I get the call from the hospital letting me know that she's been infected, I won't be permitted to go in there. And I can see my mother's window. Every day, there's a little park that separates my apartment building from from my mom's hospital. And when I stand in the park, I can see her window. I can almost see the orchid that me and my friend brought her a couple weeks ago. Or at least I think I can see it. And I think about, I think about the fact that when she's dying, if she contracts the virus, those last hours that Amin held his father's hand, maybe that maybe I'll be standing in the park just looking up at her window. Maybe that's the closest. Maybe that's the closest. I'll be able to get her get to her in her last hours.
Manuel Barry is a producer on our show. Coming up, a tiny, tiny virus breaks open a jail cell. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, The Test. The coronavirus is here. There are people who right now are forced to deal with it. We hear stories of how they face that challenge. We've arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3, Outbreak Breakout. So another way that the coronavirus outbreak has had a huge impact on people's lives, prisons and jails around the country are starting to release inmates they wouldn't have otherwise, or wouldn't have released as early anyway, to try to protect prisoners behind bars from getting sick. Correctional institutions, as you can imagine, are petri dishes of germs and microbes. The latest number that I'm seeing as I'm recording this, more than 50 inmates at Rikers Island in New York City. That's just one jail here. Correctional officers there and elsewhere also have the virus now. So the city is letting 300 inmates go. Right next door, New Jersey ordered 1,000 inmates to be released this past week. You're seeing similar decisions like that, though not as widespread, in Ohio, Illinois, Oklahoma, California, and Texas since the crisis hit. In San Francisco, the Public Defender's Office urged the release of, quote, all people who are immunocompromised or over the age of 60. Producer Sean Cole talked with somebody who made that cut. There are really two factors under consideration when figuring out who to release from jail or prison amid the COVID-19 outbreak. One, how severe was the crime? And then two, how's the person's health? How vulnerable are they? And given these two criteria, one of the best candidates available for release... Hi, Terry? Yes, sir. Was Terry Smith. Hi, how are you? Or ma'am? It's, it's sir. It's this lady? <laughs> it's sir. Okay, yeah, because I... Can you still hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Can you hear me? Okay, I'm trying to get some privacy. I'm going to a spot where... I got a hold of Terry at a residential treatment program for veterans called Fresh Start. They have facilities all over the country. This one, again, is in San Francisco. The court sent him there last week when it became clear that he might be in danger sitting in a jail cell. He'd been in the county jail for nearly a year charged with breaking into a couple of garages. Nothing violent. This was just his latest stint on these charges. He's been in and out a few times. And at 64, soon to be 65 years old, Terry has a whole pileup of comorbidities that might sound a little overwhelming when I list them. He has a seizure disorder, PTSD from serving in Vietnam, and also being abused when he was a foster kid. He's a recovering heroin addict. And most pressingly right now, Terry suffers from chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, COPD. It's a lung disease that already sent him to the hospital a couple of times. Which is why he got so frightened when he heard about the thing that's apparently coming for everybody's lungs. Inmates at San Francisco County Jail are allowed to watch TV from 7 to 8 in the morning. So we just saw it on the news. And then we watched every day and we seen it get worse and worse. And people started panicking in jail. And they don't want to panic in the jail. You get a panic in jail. You know what that you, where, where that leads to? It leads to people. Oh uh, no, we ain't going back to our bunks. We're not. They, for three days, we did not eat any meals. You didn't eat meals for three days. No, for three days. Because because you were worried about but, getting the virus. No, well because so when they serve the meals, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a guy who hands you an empty tray. That's one man, and then there's five people who put something on the tray. The beans, and then they put the or the Jello or the the salad. That's five people, including the guy who puts the tray on. That's six people. Yeah. And then you've got the guy that takes the tray at the end and stacks it up and puts it on a cart. Now, now we're at seven people, right? They're not wearing masks. Yeah. They're wearing gloves, but they're not wearing masks. So you think also, that you think uh, they're not taking enough precautions there in the jail? No, sir. I mean they're doing the best they can. 
but I think they should, those, those servers should be wearing masks. There's no hand sanitizer, so no one wants to eat the food. They're scared. A lot of older guys start, you know, trying to teach these young guys, dude, you need to, like, start washing down your bed areas. You need to start really not touching each other. You stop hand touching. They're not being fully aware of how to really to, to address this, this mess. Terry has served three years, not in prison, in jail, pre-trial waiting for his case to be resolved. His lawyer, a guy named Eric Quant, says that's the amount of time he should serve for the crimes he's accused of. And Eric has been filing motions, trying to get a settlement of some kind, maybe a plea deal. But it kept getting delayed and delayed. And then the virus hit. I was scared. And I guess I'm going to be honest with you, I was scared. I was mm-hmm. scared that they were going to let me get this virus and die up here. Eric saved my life by doing what he did for me. Eric saved my life. And the judge. It just seems so crazy that it that it was a virus that essentially came to your rescue. Yeah, a, a virus. That was all it took for the criminal justice system to kick into gear. A deadly scourge that's devastating the world. So Terry's no longer behind bars and walks out into a city that's completely on lockdown. Remember, San Francisco was one of the first cities to issue a shelter-in-place ordinance. He told me he had all these fantasies about what he would do when he was free again. See his girlfriend, say hi to his friends. Instead, he's not seeing anyone, except the other guys in the facility. My granddaughter, Lee, she's really close to me, real close, okay? I couldn't wait. I'm getting out. I'm going to go get my baby and put her in my arms, you know what I mean? So she said, she doesn't understand, Papa, you're out. Why can't you come see me? I want to make sure... When I come see you, I'm okay to come see you. I got to make sure I'm not bringing her nothing, you know what I mean? It's like these two opposite things, being incarcerated and not being incarcerated, inched ever so slightly closer to each other when Terry wasn't looking. His life kind of looks a lot like other people's in America right now, happening indoors, looking at the outside world like it's an exhibit. But listen to how he talks about it. Uh, I can look right now from the, the, the kitchen. I can see the beach. One block from me to the right, one block from me to the right is the park, Golden Gate Park. Mm-hmm. Ten blocks down, I can see the ocean. Mm-hmm. I see it every night. I watch the sunset. I sat last night and watched the, the sunset red. So when I hear my breakfast, I had an avocado and banana. It's the same words that a lot of us are saying to each other on the phone or Skype or whatever. This is what I'm looking at out my window. This is what I ate. But for Terry, they're a celebration. John Call is one of the producers of our show. I'm bored, so damn bored, so bored on my mind, and I'm too scared, so, so scared to go outside, and it's cause of Corona, 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 virus. Act four, hello from the other side. Okay, so Emmanuel Berry, who you heard earlier in the show in Act Two, Emmanuel used to live in China. And she's been texting back and forth with friends there since January when the virus shut down parts of that country. Now, as American cities are shutting down, a lot of her friends in China are texting her, asking how she's doing. Here's Emmanuel. 
The other day I got this text from China. It said, A word from your future. It will get better. Today we were on the street and it almost felt normal. It arrived during a hard week. I was worried about my dad, who's high risk, money, my friends who work in hospitals, my best friend who's supposed to have a kid any day now. I'm constantly thinking about how uncertain each day feels, and I'm craving normal. My friend Rebecca Canthor sent it. She lives in Shanghai, and I called her to hear more about this normal. Oh, hey, I gotta tell my husband to stop. <laughs> He's like in like, hey, yo, Liu Tian? Liu Tian? Hey, Liu Tian? Rebecca is American, but she's lived in China for 17 years. She's married to a Chinese man. Her kids go to Chinese schools. He's carrying a hunk of frozen meat. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, for what? Is he cooking? I think he's hungry and he wants to cut a piece off of it. Husband out of the way. We talked. China, of course, has had a much more aggressive response to the virus than anything that's happened in the States so far. They locked down Wuhan, traced contacts, isolated people who were sick, sometimes separating them from their families. The government mandated quarantines. The governor of New York has suggested it might be four to nine months before stay-at-home orders are lifted. But in Wuhan, just two months in, the city is set to open up again. And in cities like Beijing and Shanghai, the few new cases being reported are coming from travelers. They've been told to resume life as normal. (sighs) How you doing? How am I doing? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, like, I think I've accepted that it's going to be tough. Um, but part of me just wants to, like, know that it's going to be okay at the end of it, even if it's going to be so, like, if it's going to be difficult, if that makes sense, you know? You, you want to know it's going to be okay in the end? I mean, what was it? what was it like for you two months ago? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it definitely feels different now. I mean, two months ago, it just felt like, yeah, just so uncertain and things changing by the day. Um, yeah, so there's just every, every week was different. At this point, it, you're maybe on the other side of this, possibly on the other side of this. Like, what, what does that look like? Well, okay, so yeah, things are, you know, feeling much better here. I think it just feels like, you know, taking off like a really hot jacket, you know, when like when you're wearing a winter jacket and like all of a sudden the weather gets warmer and you're like, oh, I don't need to be wearing this anymore. Yeah. And you take it off and you've got short sleeve shirt, short sleeves on and you just feel yeah, just relaxed. Can you take the train now? Like what's the, what are the trains like? Yes. I just saw a picture uh, from the train today and it would you know, at the beginning, the trains were, the subways were still running, I think the whole way through. Mm-hmm. But back in the beginning, you know, there was like one or two people per car. And now all the seats, at least the photo I saw, all the seats were being sat in. But I, I haven't taken the subway since January. You haven't. Is there is there a reason for that? Or is it just... I think I just told myself that that was something that I could control. And I just thought, well, if I can get it there on my electric bike or my bicycle, then I'll go to those places. But if I, I just, I stopped taking taxis and I stopped taking 
the subway, even though they're all running. It's just kind of my personal, you know, thing that I decided I wasn't going to do. As I talk to Rebecca and other friends in China, I've noticed this thing. When they talk about things returning to normal, they start describing all these things that aren't normal. You know, everyone's still wearing a mask. Here, we're told not to wear a mask. In some cities in China, masks were mandatory. Or like I, I saw, like the other day, I saw someone taking a selfie. And then like halfway through the selfie, they were like, oh, shoot, I'm still wearing my mask. So they had to like, remember, take it off and then take the selfie again. What does the mask, does it sort of feel like this reminder to you that it's like, oh, this isn't normal? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, because actually the government said you can take off your masks. Um, they said, you know, they, they had a press conference and, and the government official like took their mask off and it was like, you can take your masks off. You only need them, you know, when you go into like certain public areas. But in reality, most people are still wearing them. And it's not just that people are still wearing masks. Temperature taking is now everywhere. So when you go into any public space and also when you enter any housing compound, you know, like an apartment complex, uh, there's someone at the gate uh, with a little, you know, body sensor, you know, thermometer. And they, you know, put it up to your forehead or they put it on your wrist and take your temperature. The newest thing for Rebecca to get used to has been this QR code system. It basically sorts people. Should you be quarantined or not? It's a little unclear how people are being sorted into these categories, but it involves people's locations being tracked through their cell phone. If you've recently visited a hospital, been around a sick person, bought a train or plane ticket, it's being monitored. The code is like an admission ticket to do anything in the city. I went to visit a friend uh, at their apartment complex, and I had to, first of all, I had to register my name, phone number, passport number, and then I also had to show them on my phone um, a like a QR code, like a like a little square code that um, shows that I've been in Shanghai for the past 14 days. So I get a green code, and you know the only way they can find that out is you know they have my phone records and like my uh, GPS coordinates or whatever. I don't know how they find it, but but that's not something that I don't know. Or is that possible in the U.S.? I don't. I don't think. I don't think so. <laughs> Right. Now that offers, that gives me, that makes me feel like I have a sense of security, to be honest, because I look at it and I say, oh, well, I've been here for the past 14 days. I, you know, I'm in the safe zone. Um, But, uh, you know, and if you go elsewhere, if you maybe go to another city or you travel abroad and you come back, then you're in a yellow zone or a red zone. To play a game of basketball, you need a QR code. And then when you get to the park, a volunteer takes your temperature before letting you in. Um, they do limit the numbers of people going into the park across the street from my house. But uh, there's just, it's it's always lots of people there now. But I think they still, I do not think they have let the ladies do their um, square dancing at night. I think that is not back to normal. So usually at nighttime, like around 7 p.m. in all the parks, you'll have like uh, older women and older men doing dance routines, line dancing routines. And that has stopped. And I don't think it's come back. 
Rebecca says they discourage it because the crowds would be too much. I doubt that our future in the U.S. looks anything like what Rebecca's describing. But everything feels so chaotic here. And the idea that eventually that feeling stops. You get used to the new normal. I can take comfort in that. Emmanuel Barry. Today by Dana Chivas and Nadia Raymond. People who put together today's show from their own homes. Imarawunmi, Emmanuel Berry, Susan Burton, Ben Calhoun, Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Nor Gill, Damian Grave, Hannah Jaffe Walt, Mickey Neek, Lena Masizzi, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Ben Phelan, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Sotala, and Matt Tierney. Our managing editor is Diane Wu. Our executive editor is David Kestenbaum. Special thanks today to Clara Ampho, Patty Lyons, and everybody at Meals on Wheels in Savannah, Georgia. James Domic Jr., Samit Chase, Sam Braun, Vicky Ibarra, Daniel Harris, Peter McNally, George Pouvlakis, Jamie Lowe, Adnan Khan, Alex Kalaninskaya, Kim Su, Chuck Leong, Christina Pena, and Zilu Goa. Our website, where to pass the time in lockdowns in your own home. You can stream our archive of nearly 700 episodes for absolutely free, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, when I was in quarantine last week, he called me every single day to make sure I was okay, but I don't know. I don't think that he had the right list of symptoms. He kept asking me, Oh, is your butt hurting? I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. There are not many who remember They say a handful still survives